I know not everybody in the room is actually a let us start group, or, or, uh, or maybe some of you haven't even been a part necessarily of a small group. Uh, but I want to just ask a question this morning, and I'd like to some of you who've led groups to, uh, to, to jump in. What's the coolest thing that's ever happened in your group? If you had to say a moment that you said, wow, I was really happy that we had this group, that we were meeting, what would it be? Somebody. Where I'll call on you at random and embarrass you. Getting a real sense of the presence of God. Okay? There's a particular time you're thinking about when, when the presence of the Lord and you're really aware of this in the meeting. I think it, it is a time of worship. Some worship. Okay? Just invite opening your home to basically be a, a, a catalyst for experiencing the presence of the Lord. That's a powerful thing. Something else. A moment. Galatians.
That's a good that's what that's what you're going to do. You want to respond to that one? No? <laughs> well, that's a great question, and really can tell that you're already having a life of a small group that that kind of thing has come up. And it really does depend on the situation. How it does. Know. Well, you know, it's, I can tell you that a sense of the variety of the same things, but people are not always in the same place at any given time. And there are people that he would like to maybe take down a particular, I mean, want to really study an in-depth area of the Word of God, and then there's also areas for people in the congregation who need the basics, right? And and, and there's a, always going to be that challenge, and always going to be that dichotomy. And, and part, honestly, the adventure of growing and stretching is being where you are in that. Because there's something that the Lord does in you. Um, I don't believe that we should, you should let any one person in the group maybe dominate and dictate the way that the whole group goes. You can't do that. What you're going to need to do, if you have someone who's in crisis, I do really believe that crises give you an opportunity to minister to people and make them grow. In fact, sometimes someone's coming to your group and then they, and they're just not, I mean, they're just there, and they're just doing the time, and they're kind of on the fence. And it's that moment when they're at a point of crisis and you're there for them that there's an opportunity to go deeper in the relationship and also recommend the Christ can actually strengthen your life. So you don't want to miss those opportunities uh, because they are important. But at the same time, yeah, you have to be you have to be uh, sensitive to uh, to the fact that you know you, you can't have a this common situation. You have the whiner, okay? Pardon me. The one who comes into the room every week with the exact same problem, wanting to rehash the exact same circumstance over and over and over. Does anybody else have that experience? Maybe you're the one who does that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Sometimes one of the big challenges in, in, in ministry is I, are people who, who what I, I call this way, I sometimes refer to them as false brethren who steal the children's bread. I don't even know where I heard that term. Here's what I mean by that. You only have so much to give. You only have so much energy. And if someone is just consuming and consuming and consuming and never changing, never responding to the message, never taking the prescription you Because, you know, there are people who, no matter what suggestion, they'll say, here's my problem. And you'll say, let me give you some suggestions. Why don't you work this out? Now, if they refuse to respond to any of those suggestions and never change, and two years later they're in the exact same place, in the exact same line, no change whatsoever, there really comes a point that you as a leader have to recognize what, what, what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, the things that I have told you in the presence of many witnesses also entrust to reliable men who will interrogate with each other. You as a leader have to have a responsibility to go, I don't have so much time, and if people won't receive the word and won't do what they need to grow, I need to make sure that I save enough energy for the people who will. Does that sound cold and cruel? He should, I, I look at what Paul said to Timothy, and I see that Paul gave some very practical life to Timothy. Timothy, you need to put your effort where it's going to bear fruit. Because there's always going to be people that will consume, 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 and not bear fruit. And uh, one of the challenges of being a leader or being a pastor is recognizing that you, you, you've got only so much to give. You have to have a certain amount of boundaries in your life. You have to minister to your family. You have to do all those kinds of things. They're important. And, and so, um, depending on how this may not have been your circumstance in, in this situation, but you, you do have to keep that balance of recognizing, okay, I've got these other people that need to be fed too, and I can get a certain amount of attention here. So, there's that balance. You just have to walk out. More questions?
enthusiasm specifically about the Christianity before. Yeah, yeah. So that's where, I mean, I'm kind of a little practical guy. So going into this now, let's say we're sitting out at our mall for a group, dinner group. Um, in my mind, I'm thinking 45 minutes to about an hour or, you know, close to that. And just getting together and having dinner and so on. And then what you can really be. Um, and then that leaves about 15 or 20 minutes of, you know, discussion. And I just, just want to know if that's kind of, is that, does it make sense? Is that kind of in line with, you know, how the course works? Or obviously, you need time, you know, but I think as you start going down the road, you're probably doing a lot. As I understand it, you know, there is that there's a welcoming, there's that dinner time, there's a little bit of an introduction on the part of the leader in which you're introducing the word and the topic, then there's the video, and then there's the, the encouragement of the discussion afterwards. Am I correct on that one? Yeah, I think if you're gonna do if you're gonna go with an hour and a half, I think the challenge is probably going to be starting the dinner pretty quickly. Yep. In other words, I think you're gonna do an hour and a half, we're almost gonna be more of an atmosphere of Guests walk in, we look at the table set, and everything's yeah. about ready, which still is a warm environment. Oh, when we're right to dinner, mm-hmm. when you're right to sit down, I think you're going to have to almost be prepared for that. You're going to go for an hour and a half. Because, because, then, because then dinner's going to be more than 30 or 45 minute range, more likely 15 minutes for that DVD, okay. you'll leave in 20, or 20 minutes, 45 minutes for discussion if you want. Okay. You know what I mean? So, so I think that would be the challenge. You're going to go an hour. Some of us, it's not a bit of a trouble to say, hey, I'll sit down with you. Here you go. 
and the brothers don't offend, and, and, and there's a balance. The good part is, is you learn it as you do it. You know, if you, if, if you don't get it perfect the first time, great. Make a note of yourself and say, okay, I need to try harder to get this, keep this thing moving. Uh, I, I love the fact that Jesus did on the job training with the disciples, and guess what? He still does. So, we learn by doing it. And uh, so, so as you, I think as you do this, you'll, you'll get the, the chemistry kind of moving forward. But it, it, is, it is important that you keep any gathering moving forward, certainly. If you're, not, if you're not cognizant of the time, then there will be others in the group that will want to have a good experience. Other questions? Yes? What do you do if someone in the group who's a visitor gets kind of aggressive with the questioning and stuff? Well, uh, I issue side-offs, typically. Guns, Smith and Weston. There are a lot of techniques into it. Now, give me, a, give me an example of what you mean by it. someone gets too aggressive. Well, like from my experience, sometimes when you speak to non starts off like fine and they're 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 fine to hear what your point of view is but then somewhere along the line and I sometimes think it's it's just like you know the, the things that they're in track with and they, they get confronted with it and then that thing reacts mm-hmm. and they start to have they they start like cutting you off mid sentence and becoming like voices get louder and louder and just start saying but like that's ridiculous or like how do you say that they become argumentative in the way that they're reacting towards you? Even though you're not saying anything, you're just like sometimes I'm even testifying out of my own life, and then people are getting extremely reactive. Well, I'm fond of saying that a man with an experience is never at the earth mercy of a man with an argument. And you can always speak out of your own life and your own experience because it is your own life and experience. People sometimes will do that. And I think just being loving, and first of all, not being afraid of it. You know, last night you asked uh, the question you asked. My wife reminded me as we walked out. You know, so many of us about the relationships and the potential of losing relationships. Your greatest testimonies will come out of your greatest fears. The thing that you are the most afraid of happening, when it happens, there will be opportunities. Your greatest testimony. And we've seen that over and over. She reminded me of a very close friend of ours who had a friend for many years. And this friend, you know, was not religious at all, was actually pretty anti-religious, always came across that way. Um, and she started going to her, her group. And, uh, and, and the, the friend was afraid of closing the deal. I really asked him, you know, tell me about your faith. How has your feelings changed? Uh, do, you, do you want to see Christ? Do you want to pray a prayer? And she was just terrified of asking that question. It was just that, okay, the day that I asked that, I'm ready to And so this went on for a long time, and finally one night, she just asked. She was stuck, I can't stand anymore. And she asked, and the friend said, yeah, I'm ready to do that now. <laughs> and then she just floored. She was like, you're kidding me. Just like right, right there, she's praying, you know, the classic sinner's prayer. And to seek the Lord. And that lady is now one of our celebrities in my church. From what we received Christ that day. And, you know, your greatest testimony is really going to come out of your greatest fears if, if you address it. The fact that I just want that one question because it's a really good one. I love the picture in John 4 of Jesus and the woman of the well. What an incredible picture of how Jesus engaged this woman. 
first of all, you know, he's doing something that's really out of the box. He's a Jewish guy engaging a, a strange woman in the middle of the day. And, and the only reason she was there in the middle of the day, women didn't come to the world well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, except that she was ashamed and she didn't want to do, deal with the stares of other women because obviously she had a past she was ashamed of. And probably in her youth, she had actually experienced going there with the other women. But at this point in time, she's going there. Jesus starts to ask a question. First of all, he does something very humble. He asks her to help him. Give me a drink of water. That was actually an act of humility. And she responds, how you, a Jew, are asking me a Samaritan woman? Because there was no association. I don't need to take the time to go in and rhyme to do this later. Uh, the, the, the whole complex association between the Jews and the Samaritans. But it did not happen. This was a, so culturally, it would never happen. And she, she was amazed that he did it. And, and he said, listen, and he answered her, okay, if you knew who asked you for the water, you'd ask him if he'd give you living water. Well, she immediately begins to respond and then back with the culture argument, which is what you're talking about, but that ridiculous. She goes, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And, and that was the argument between the Jews and, 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 and the Samaritans. And she throws it, it's kind of like the argument that I hear people say something like, all oh, Christians are hypocrites. And what about the priests that molest the, the, the boys? Or, or how can you possibly think that the creation story in Genesis is remotely plausible? Most of the time that people were responding that way, they're really responding out of their wounds. What they're really wanting to do is just give you whatever reason for why they're going to reject the faith. It's not even, it's a straw man. Oh, that's another one. There's another cultural term. It's a distraction. It's not, it's not really what's going on here. It's the wall they're putting up by means that, that gives them the excuse to reject what you're saying. And Jesus didn't say, well, let me tell you about the history of this well. <laughs> Jesus didn't begin to argue with her. Jesus lovingly engaged her. Jesus kept the conversation going. And he did it in a humble way. When you look at that passage, and just, I mean, let's, let's read it almost from a historical or narrative perspective and see how masterfully he engaged this woman. Because he kept it going, he kept asking her questions. You know, and, and uh, the water that I give is a well of water, and you'll never thirst again. He's almost speaking in these kind of mysteries, but he keeps engaging and keeps engaging. Then he says, I love this one. Go call your husband. I don't have it. And then he says to her, that's right. In fact, you've had five, and then you're married. You're, you're living right now, isn't it? But the way he says it, if you read it in the language, he commends her. He says, thank, basically, thank you for telling me the truth. I, I, and he does it twice. Um, what you said is, is true. And then he reveals that obviously, you know, that information, she's like, wow, I can see your problem. No kidding. Um, but do you know how most, now, many traditional evangelicals would have responded that they've been sitting there, and all of a sudden they were supernaturally endowed with the knowledge that this woman had a very checkered past. They might have gone, you harlot. Repent of your sin. Right? I can see people doing that. But that's not what Jesus did. Because the purposes of the Lord are always restful. 
And he didn't argue, he didn't engage, he didn't get in battle, he didn't do any of those things. And so my encouragement to you on all that is, is look the model of Matthew. And, and patiently, I mean, don't let someone run your meeting into the ground. Okay? There's a point in which you can say, hey, can we, we continue this conversation privately or something like that. There's a way you can do that. But at the same time, I think in your demeanor, in your response, a soft answer turns away wrath. Don't reject. Don't just reject. And then out of that, I, I still tend to believe that your greatest fears will be your greatest testimony. Okay. Other questions? All right, I want you to imagine with me for just a few minutes. Movie, movie scene. Ready, set, action. We see, as the camera pans out, a lonely hillside. And there, is, in, in the top of the hillside, you see silhouetted in the setting sun, the lone figure of a man. His hair is being blown by the wind. As the, as the camera zooms in on this lone figure, you see his, his piercing blue eyes and aquiline features. And as the camera pans to the left, you see the Sea of Galilee. You see these Galilean fishermen toiling at their nets. They look up and they see the mysterious stranger on the hillside. And this mysterious stranger begins to move towards them. And they look up and they transfix at the figure on the hillside. And the figure calls out to them, Come! In a perfect British accent. Which I can't do. And follow me! And I will make you fishers of men. And the men, like zombies, drop their nets. And they go, and they're followers of Jesus. All right, that's the Hollywood version. That's what we see in Hollywood. I was at a spot speech yesterday. And if I said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, I would fail miserably. <laughs> Nobody would follow me. They would look at me. How many of you tried it? <laughs> it doesn't happen. And we have this picture of how Jesus made disciples. I'm going to tell you that that's not what happened. The best way we can tell how he went about things is actually from the chronology in the book of Luke. Because the book of Luke opens up with this interesting statement. He says, I have set Theophilus an attempt to write an orderly account of what happened. Now, Luke was a Greek. Greeks had a tendency to, to, to think in kind of orderly, chronological manner. And that word there, when he says orderly, is actually, can also be interpreted in red to mean chronological. Okay? Uh, Mark and John and Matthew all were Jewish thinkers. Okay? The chronology of it was not as important as the, as, as the facts. It was more... In your more Eastern narratives, they weren't as interested in getting things in the exact order. John is actually the worst at it. Sometimes John will be telling you a story and then he'll back up and tell you what happened. There was a background to it. So sometimes when we're reading the New Testament, we're, we're, we're not, you know, we don't think. Something is true in the Old Testament. For example, the book of Jeremiah isn't necessarily written in the order of the events. There comes a point in which he goes back and begins to describe things that happen. So all of that. Okay? But. Luke gives us the chronology, and I tell you this for a reason. Because in Luke, 
we see how Jesus built relationships and made disciples more than in any of the other Gospels. And one of the things we begin to see, first of all, is we see that uh, his, his baptism in which he has that encounter with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals his destiny. You are my son. And he reveals his acceptance and whom I am well pleased. And we see that this, this, this basic experience of encounter with God, a revelation of destiny, uh, 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 the, the acceptance of the Lord's acceptance, which of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think this is the first time Jesus knew it, but, but I want you to remember those three things. And then from here, we read that he went into the town of Capernaum. Well, actually, first of all, he went to Nazareth. He stood up, he read the scroll. Then he was run out of town for saying, okay, uh, this is fulfilled today in sight. So he winds up going to Capernaum. He begins to build relationships with Capernaum. He begins to teach at Capernaum. He begins to hang out in people's homes. He hang out in the, uh, in the home of, uh, of, of, of uh, Simon's mother. And she's feeding him. One day she's sick. He prayed for her. She was healed. All right, more and more people began to come and listen to this guy. He's building relationships. Um, now, what I want to point out that at this point, Peter was not converted. Peter's just a guy in the town. Peter's there. There's no evidence whatsoever that Peter was converted at this particular point in time. Because Luke 5 continues the story. One day, Luke's letting us know it wasn't the next day, but obviously some days later, as Jesus was standing by the lake and people were crowding around and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, along the sun, and asked him to put out a little bit from the shore. And there he taught people from the boat. Now I want you to see something that Jesus has done, because we can just gloss over it and miss it without, without paying attention. Jesus just asked Simon to help him. One of the important things you can do to engage people is to ask them to help you. Simon, let me borrow your boat. This was Simon's livelihood. This was how Simon made his money. It was an asset that Simon had. He said, Simon, I want you to lend me your asset. You know, sometimes I've seen people do crazy things. I've seen people get saved because they got invited to help build the set at a church production. Okay? Sometimes just asking people, taking a humble step and saying, hey, um, building a backyard barbecue pit. How about helping me? I see you're going to get the little but sometimes it's crazy as it seems, asking somebody for help is a way of getting them engaged with you. Because Jesus clearly did it. Okay? So, what happens? Well, then Peter goes out in the boat. Now, it's kind of ironic when you think about it. Jesus has just given, uh, uh, been given the opportunity to use this boat. Peter has basically left his business to Jesus. Well, what's going to happen? The business is getting ready to get blessed. Because then he goes out and he throws it out on the other side and he gets this ton of fish. And it's so supernatural that Peter goes, oh, wow, this had to have been God. Because he just received this great blessing. Now. And so what does Peter do? At this moment, Peter's kind of overwhelmed by it. And he comes back to the seashore and he falls down on his knees and says, leave me alone, part from me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus looks at him and he says, now I want you to notice this. This is the moment. This is the moment. He says to Peter, follow me. Because from now on, I'm going to make you a fisher for the souls of men. 
Peter had come to that moment of aha. And Jesus recognized it. And he sees that time. He had no relationship with Peter. In other words, it's very different from the Hollywood version, isn't it? Okay. Of, oh, come and follow me. Because here we see that there was a process before Jesus actually introduced that concept to him. And it's also interesting to me that when he said that, he, he gave Peter a vision for the future. He revealed who Peter really was. I think one of the great needs for small group leaders are eyes that see not just who people are, but who they need to be. You need to ask the Lord about it. Ask the Lord to give you a heart. Because there's people all around you who are so much more in God's eyes than what they are now. There's a person that the Lord envisions. You know, what is a call of God? A call of God is an invitation to become. God says, this is who you can be. This is who, who, this person that, I, that I, I, I want you to be. If you'll take my hand and follow my invitation and walk with me. And I think of Samuel who called out David. The Bible says that from the day that Samuel poured the oil on him, the Holy Spirit came upon him. I love it. It says, from this day forward. Until Samuel was the youngest of the family who nobody paid any attention to and didn't care enough to invite him to the party. Okay? When, when, when the, if you're familiar with the story, in 1 Samuel, of when David was David's call leadership, his family did not think enough of the young man to invite him when the most powerful religious figure in the land was coming to your house for dinner and said, bring all of your sons. Oh, well, him. We weren't thinking of him. I think of all my sons, but I don't think about him. <laughs> Kind of like for, for me as an American, if Billy Graham was coming to my town and said to my dad, uh, I want you to bring your whole family together and I'm coming to your house for dinner. And I was the only kid that didn't get invited. We've been talking about it every Christmas from then on out. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you, know, you got the invitation to eat dinner with Billy. That was David. But Samuel saw something in him. And he called it out. Not all this to say, there'll be those moments in building a relationship with somebody that you'll see if you'll let the Lord let you see with spiritual eyes. He'll do it. And there'll be those moments. And it might be when they're in crisis. It might be in that moment when they're not having a good day in their day. But it's when they're going to be spiritually open and spiritually vulnerable. Okay? I won't take the time to, to continue with the whole story of how Jesus did it, but I'll encourage you to look at it because you'll see that he goes on. And he, he then takes 12 people and he begins to spend more and more time with them. And then there was a group of 70 that were in the periphery of that 12. And so Jesus begins to pour himself into a small group of people. <clears throat> so much of the time we read the red letters, Jesus isn't just talking to the crowd. In fact, a lot of times he's not talking to the crowd, he's talking to a small group of people. He poured himself into a small group of people. It wasn't about the multitudes. The multitudes didn't understand the message. Jesus is speaking to us. He was a cell group leader. He was a small group leader in a real sense. If you look at his style of ministry, he was looking for people who were faithful, who were available, who were teachable, who were willing to receive. And that's so much of what he did in his discipleship making process. We see the same thing in the life of Paul. We see the same thing in the New Testament. 
And that's why I'm trying to encourage you that what you're doing is ultimately the New Testament model of ministry. Bringing people into your life, bringing people into your home. Most of the time in the Western church world, we we're focusing on big numbers. We want to gather as many people in the building as we can. We, we, we focus on trying to make it as easy for people to get there and as hard as possible for them to leave. Um, and, and really, what the emphasis is on what you know. But, but if you look at the New Testament model, Jesus focused on small numbers. He focused on the one. He focused on the three. He focused on the twelve. That was his focus. The masses and the multitudes were a byproduct of his focus on the small. Jesus actually made it hard to join and easy to leave. He expected people. He, uh, he, 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 he made them do things. He did. I mean, I, I, I know that it's, it's hard sometimes to say, okay, well, you know, people just come to my group, they don't, they don't necessarily want to do anything. Getting them involved in something is a great idea. Pull them along. Sometimes you have to do that a little bit. Okay, questions. We'll take a break. Otherwise. Yeah. Let's say you've got one person in the group who has a need, and you've got another one, some other person who seems to be disengaged. This person, you're going to go visit this person, you're going to go this person, this person, you're going to go take dinner to this person, grab this person, come go with you. Okay? Do something like that. Pull them along. Um, find a way to get them involved in meeting somebody's practical need. Um, you know, way, the way I do it sometimes at this point is, is I've actually, if I was Sometimes if I was going somewhere speaking or I was going to have an opportunity, I might take somebody with me that I was trying to mentor or bring along. Um, but, the, I mean, look for some opportunity to get them involved. And look what Jesus did. Jesus sent them out by two. I know Ryan preached on this, as he alluded to. The whole model of, of how, how that he did that. And, and he, would, uh, he would give them a task, and then they would come back to him and report. Again, I, I encourage you to read this and look. I don't have the time to really... I do a whole series on this of, 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 of looking at what he did. But so much of the time, then they would come back to him and, and they would, they would, you know, sometimes he actually corrected. Nobody likes that, right? But he did. Sometimes he did it gently. You know, like look, 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 kid, and, and they they come and say, "Oh, these demons are subject to us here." And he goes, "That's good." But don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is published in heaven. You're known in heaven, guys. This is so much more. Be, be excited about the fact that you have this heritage and this, this kingdom. So he's, what is he doing? He's lovingly adjusting their thinking. You know one of my favorite things about the Lucanology is it's after this, after they've been casting out demons, praying for the sick, that the disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And suddenly it hit me one day, and I'm reading this, going, you mean he sent them out, casting out demons before he ever taught them how to pray? You talk about on-the-job training. And it occurred to me, why? Why? Because if he taught them the ritual of prayer, okay, you do this, and you do this for five minutes, and then you do this for five minutes, then prayer became a ritual. But instead... Jesus got them doing work in the ministry, hands-on. And you know what? Suddenly they recognize their need for prayer. You, you listen, you're dealing with demons? You're going to want to know how to pray? <laughs> and so, so now, now they're motivated and they're driven. And they're going, Lord, we want to know how to pray. 
Now it's in the heart. Now they're praying because it's, it's life and it's passion and it's, and it's important to them and it's real. It's not a rule. It's not a ritual. It's not plastic. It's, a, it's beautiful to see how we built these relationships. Lovingly guiding. I mean, I just really think if you, if, if you just, in your private time, I know the next few weeks especially, you're really going to be camping with Mark. And you need to because that's very important for what you're doing because Mark is a beautiful way of to introduce people to the kingdom. But in terms of understanding the process of how to really bring somebody along and say, I love you. Questions? I just did a follow-up there. It's, it's pretty cool. The stuff you're describing right now are actually going through tomorrow and Sunday as well. Plunging in, being, uh, not even being converted to Christ, but jumping into yeah. the process and then We'll see tomorrow and uh, feeding the 5,000, they can come back and report to Jesus when they're done. Um, just to add, Jamie asked another practical tip. Think about cliches more in particular. And tell me, John, if you think this is appropriate to, to think about either buying or making dinner or buying or making desserts. I would think maybe a couple weeks in, taking the people along with you to, to shop with you for, for the food or even what he said. Totally. Help, help them practically make the meal. Hey, would you mind uh, bringing the dessert tonight? Would you mind helping make dinner? Can you come here early and help me make dinner? Come back Yeah, come back in. Yeah, that's good. Let's say after we talk about people who put the roles is to help cook healthy and most of the time. Yeah. They will say, yeah. I haven't thought about this. That, and they may look at you for like, seriously? <laughs> Do it. Try it. Because getting them involved is an invitation to come closer into relationship. And that's a, that's a good thing. You want to do that. Let them take ownership of it. If they have, here's another American colloquialism, sorry. If they have skin in the game, if they have, if they, I'm sorry, Ryan, I'm all if they, if they have something that they have invested into this, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. As you begin to invest your life, your money, whatever in something. You know, I mean, honestly, I don't care whether Apple stock goes up tomorrow or down. Because I don't own any Apple stock, right? But if I owned Apple stock, I probably would look at it every day. Because I'm interested. In the same time, in the same way, if you, if you have put time or effort or resources into something, you have a tendency to buy into it more, don't you? And that's why I, I, I think that this is, this is a beautiful thing to see in the life of Jesus. He's pulling these people along, asking for their help, when they, they have, they're not followers of him yet. And so sometimes just getting them involved, you know, in the basis of your relationship with them is, a, is an incredible honor. Right? Questions? Can you guys think of any other opportunities in doing a dinner group like this or a dinner group where you can point one? I just try to do
then, and, and so, and Paul gets there, I mean, uh, uh, Barnabas gets there also, and he goes, you know who would be really good for this? Paul. He travels all the way up to Tarsus and finds Paul, who at this point had gone home, gone back to life, gone back to what he knew, probably making tents. We don't believe that he's preaching up there. We just don't believe there. And all of a sudden he says, Paul, you've got to come with me. You are the exact guy that we need. And he pulls him down, he puts him there in, in Antioch, and the rest is history. Because the day came, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work that I have called them. And the greatest apostolic team the world ever knew went out in the earth. And the gospel went to a lot of our ancestors in that period one time. Right? The world changed because of what happened in Antioch. Consider the influence of the gospel. I want to say to you, be the encourager. Give people hope. They will attach themselves to you if you will give them hope. You didn't remember anything else I said this week. I remember that. People will attach themselves to you if you are the person who gives them hope. It will take a discipline on your part as a leader. It will take an incentive on your part. You're going to have to consciously ask the Lord to give you eyes to see what can be and not just what is. Because sometimes what is is kind of hopeless. Listen, I have watched in small group ministry, I've watched prostitutes walk in the door who three years later were leading small groups, ministering people leading them across. I've watched countless drug addicts, who are some of the strongest leaders we have, who were hopelessly, hopelessly addicted. They tried multiple programs. I've seen it. I've seen it happen too many times. See with supernatural eyes and give people. Help them walk down a pathway to maturity. There's a little acronym I use. called RECESS. Reach, connect, equip, sin. It's just a little process. Reach. We've got to reach people, right? You've got you to find a way of building a relationship with them. This is some of the strategy we talked about this weekend. This is why you were doing Christianity Explorer. You've got to reach them. The second thing is, comes a point in that reaching process, they really need to get connected to two things. They need to get connected to Jesus, and they need to get connected to the church body. There comes a point in which they, it, they need to own their own relationship with God. At first, they just have a relationship with you. But there's a process in the reaching in which you connect them. They get connected to your community group. They get connected to the church here. There's a connection process. So you reach connect. The third step in disciple-making is the equipping. A lot of that happens in the body as they're sitting here listening to the systematic teaching of the Word of God. A lot of that happens in, in their relationship with you. Week after week after week into your community group. And they're getting equipped, equipped, equipped. As God grows you guys, I mean, I don't know what your fundamental discipleship models are here, but there, 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 there will be other opportunities in growing and in, in disciple-making and really growing deeper in the Word. You need to get them equipped. As they grow. The last thing that you really need to do, we're also talking about it today, and that's sending them. Give them something to do. Give them a task. Let them lead. Give them an opportunity. Do something like that. I love the process. Um, your husband's a medical school, right? I, uh, I don't know if they still train doctors this way, but let me tell you how they used to train surgical procedures. 
it was C1, do one, teach one. They still do it? Okay. This is, kind of, this is an amazing, it's a very simple process. You observe the surgical procedure, then you're required to do the surgical procedure, and then you're required to teach somebody else a surgical procedure. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of somebody having that simple amount of training doing my appendectomy makes me nervous. But that's the reality. Because if you see they learned years ago that if someone saw 42 of them happen, by the time he actually did it, he'd be so nervous, he'd be less likely to succeed. Now, here's what we do. We sit, put people in church, and they spend 40 years of their life listening to theoretical arguments of how to reach the loss, but they never had to actually engage in the loss, which is one of the reasons why we're all so nervous about doing it. But if you see it and then you do it, get them out there. I like to see this. I like to see people shortly after they arrive in the church body being given a task and an opportunity to be a part of outreach. Because frankly, it's addictive. I was telling someone a little while ago about my 12-year-old son. I took him on a mission trip to Peru when I put my first trips to Peru. My, my 12-year-old son had an opportunity to go out into a little area with a little translator. Lo and behold, he actually gave somebody on a park bench Park and began to talk to him about, his, about God and his spiritual life and wound up leading this person to Christ, praying in a sinner's prayer right here on the spot. And my son comes back to me, and I was involved in something that was busy, but I could tell my son was being emotional. He had tears streaming down his face. He came to me and said, Dad, this is the greatest feeling in the world. Now that son today, I mean, when he began to pursue what he was doing in life, he wanted to become pastor. He's the one who's serving in China today. But what happened to him is at a young age, he figured out, this Jesus stuff is cool. This is great. There's nothing like it. The problem is, we sometimes wait too long to let people experience this. So we need to sit. We need to see one, do one, teach one. What you say is fairly like this. You watch me do it, okay? Then you do it with me. Then I'm going to do it with you, and then you do it. Did you get that? One more time. I do it, you watch me do it. Then you do it with me. Then I do it with you. Go after the other way around. I do it with you, then you do it with me, and then you do it. That's a little process in anything that you do. Whether it's, you know, you've got someone in your group. And, and, you know, you might want to at the appropriate time and talk to Brian about this. Why don't you fix anything I'll break after I try to leave? Look at someone who's coming along and say, why don't you share the message tonight? What the How else do you train a leader? How else do you train the next person? You need to, be, you need to have those opportunities and those things that you're bringing people along, okay? So you want to help people to grow, to reach Connect, equip, and send. Keep watch over their lives. Watch out for them. You know, I'm not telling you to be morale in the woods. <clears throat> but the enemy has a plan, just like, you know, that famous little bright track from many, many years ago that most of you can remember. It began with the phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life. God does have a wonderful plan. Satan also has a plan. He always has a plan. He doesn't sleep and he doesn't slumber. So recognize that the enemy has a plan to trip up people in your group's lives. Watch out. Help them. Be aware. Don't be afraid, you know, to speak the truth to them. 
Now, you, you've got to be aware of where they are, too. It should correspond with where they are. You know, whoosh. you know, my church, my home church, we're, we're, we're in the southern United States. Although Florida is not a particularly conservative state, I mean, still, it's a relatively conservative group of people. And when you start to have people coming in to the, to, in the early days, uh, to the church, and even actually coming in and attend some of the classes and some of the classes, who had been living with somebody for years without being married. I mean, a lot of the people, the first reaction was, oh, you know, well, the first thing you have to do, they, they just become a Christian. We've got to, again, I don't want to mess too much with anybody's uh, theology structure here, here but, but understand that, you know, what's normal in the culture is normal in the culture. And you've got to give people time and grace. And one of the things that we really had to teach our leaders to do was, but don't pounce on people and give them all the rules the day they walk in the door. If you do that, you're going to squeeze the life right out of them. It's not that we don't believe certain things. It's not that we don't say, okay, these are biblical principles, these are the right principles, these are things. But also, give people grace. Because this is what I said earlier about how Jesus taught people to pray. If we just need people to follow the rules before they come along and really become connected to Christ and, 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 and the Lord's... Uh, Grace and presence in their life is being revealed. So many of these things will work out. But there does come a place, especially if you're talking about leaders, especially if you're talking about people that you want to train and equip, that you begin to go, okay, this is not a biblical behavior, this is not a biblical thing. But you know what? Sometimes being a person of God, if you have responsibility for this person, and I want to emphasize if you have responsibility for this person, I don't think that we all need to take care of everybody else's need. But if you have somebody who's in your care, and you know they're in your care, you do have a responsibility, and, a, and frankly, a God-given authority, to be able to lovingly speak into their lives and address those things. So you need to watch over their lives. Okay? I want to encourage you to keep your group positive. How many of you have ever been in a group, and all of a sudden, somebody went down a negative road, and all of a sudden, whoa! Everything was being talked about that this was in the name. Don't let that happen. Just kind of take control of that. Um, you, you know, it's better if you stay true to the focus, you stay true to the vision. Um, sometimes when self sadness you'll actually have on that. I mean, say people have been in there for two years, you'll tend to see the group become a, a group that just kind of discusses whatever's wrong. Either wrong with the culture, or wrong with politics, or wrong with the church for that matter. You can move on that, like that. Okay? Um, a cell should be the following thing. A small group should be the following thing. It, it, it needs to, it, like I said, it should be regular. It needs to penetrate the community. It needs to evangelize. And it needs to multiply. All of those things. are just normal parts of the life of the cell. Um, Inviting new visitors, and we covered this some last night, it's almost a lot of time on this. Inviting new visitors, even long, even at, if you're not still doing the Christianity Explorer, we get down the road. But keeping the atmosphere of bringing new people in will keep a small group alive. Not doing it, it will eventually die. You have to have new life, and you have to have constant flow. It's like a, it's like a pool of water, and you want water flowing in, and you want water flowing out. The outflow is the multiplication, ideally, as opposed to just kicking them out randomly. Although you probably will have some, just want to get rid of. <laughs> and by the way, there might come a point in which you have to go to your pastors and say, 
I have a problem with this person because they're changing the whole dynamic of the cell. And from where I sit, and this was set on their shoulders and on mine, but there's a point in which there are those rare occasions in which you got to say, yeah, this person probably doesn't need to be Because it's killing the group. Um, now, I tend to think that that point is probably way past from what people think it is. But then the flip side of that is there there there's sometimes those that think, well, Jesus would never, ever, ever do that. And yet, I see the life of Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul did, on occasion, you know, bring some sort of corrective word in judgment. All right, so that's the heavy stuff. But it is important, I believe, that, that, you, that you keep those, those things moving and you keep those um, things moving forward. There are a lot of myths. Some people think it takes a special gift of evangelism. It, it, being an evangelist is a great thing. But I, I once had a man when we were trying to implement a, a, a small structure in church with a, a man in the church. He looked at me and he said, John, I am not called to be an evangelist. God does not. Hold me in any way, shape, or form accountable for the souls of men because I don't have the patience to call. And I don't know if you have it, you guys, but my, my reaction to him and what came out of my mouth was, man, I would hate to have to have those words on my lips on those today. I don't want to be the one standing before the Lord saying, I am not my brother's keeper because those words kind of don't have a real great history with the Lord. It doesn't take an evangelist. You know what it does? It takes a worker. It takes someone who's willing to do the job, who will accept the call, who will say, here am I, send me. I'm willing to do what it takes. I don't have all the answers. I don't even know what I'm doing, but God will trust. Some people think it takes people who have uh, special spiritual gifts, but I believe more than half as important as those spiritual gifts are. We have all received the gift of the Lord's grace, the Lord's call. And I think believing in the gift that he gave us when he looked and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You, therefore, go. Go my disciples. Go build these purposeful relationships with people. It takes believing that word. Going, ah, okay, that's me. He's talking. A whole lot more than any other gift. Some people think it takes a special knowledge, special training. Jesus' school of ministry was so radically different from the Western methodologies that we trained in. Okay? I appreciate seminaries. I appreciate um, Bible schools. I appreciate all those kinds of things. They are important. They play a very important role. But that wasn't how Jesus trained his leaders. He trained in relation to the tasks that he was doing. And so my point is that, that a lot of people think I haven't been educated enough to make a disciple. But I think that that is a really big problem. Because it's just not true. You can give away what you have. You can't give away what you don't have. That's why you don't need to pretend you have every answer. You don't have to answer every theological discussion at the moment. What you have, though, what Jesus has done in you, you can reproduce that. To whatever degree you have. And I, I, I would venture to say that whatever He's done in you, whatever grace He's revealed in your life, is worth repeating to somebody else. And you can give that away. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no additional equipping 
beyond listening to his voice and following and taking risks. You'll have to take risks. Risks are inevitable. It really takes a, a, a simple heart. Um, you know, some people won't think it's it's about, you know, if we had a bigger budget, if we had this, all those things are great. But there's absolutely nothing that beats simple faith that takes the risk and says, you know what, I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to do this. Sometimes the people you'll have the most results with aren't always the bright and the beautiful. Sometimes they're the, pardon me, the trash of the world system. They're the overlooked. They're the awkward. They're the lonely. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, he had compassion because they were harassed as a sheep without a shepherd. Can I tell you a strange experience I had? I don't tell this to many groups. People will think I'm a lunatic. <clears throat> One day I was out praying along a causeway in a park from where I lived. And I was a I was just talking to the Lord and I was walking along the water and I noticed some mother fellow in a fishing line caught up in some mangroves and I and I saw it and I thought oh, some, some fisherman left this trash here. I, I was kind of absolutely minded and I grabbed the monofill up with my plan was to throw it in a nearby waste container. And I as I did it, I realized that it had a the water line went out of water. Oh, okay. So I started pulling it in. And as I pulled it in, I pulled it in, I I, I started feeling the tug on the other end. I realized there's a fish on this line. I kept pulling it, I kept pulling it, I kept pulling it in. Finally pulled it in and I I don't know if you guys know what this is, but it was it was a saltwater catfish. Which is pretty common in the, in the river system where, nearby where, where I, I live. And it's not a fish that you want for anything. We call them trash fish. That's probably used in the rest of the world, but basically it's a fish that you don't want to eat. You throw it back. You're not interested in a, in a trash fish. But as I, as I had this thing and I was getting the hook, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he hit me, it hit me so hard. It was almost a physical sensation in my body. I was aware of the presence of the Lord. He was so close. And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, I have fish on the line that you do not know of, but you consider them trash fish. And suddenly I realized a fresh call the Lord was giving me. To realize that so much of the attention that I needed to give towards reaching out to people were the people that were overlooked, the ones that were addicted or in trouble or, or, or troublemakers or people that I would not really want to build a relationship with you know, on a normal basis. But those are the ones that were saying, these are the ones that are going to receive my message. And so I, we began to go down that path. And as I said, we have seen some incredible, incredible things happen. Uh, now, that won't always be the case. But in many cases, let the Lord open your eyes because some of the people that He may bring into your pathway are people you find annoying. But ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. Okay? Because the Lord was moved with compassion and soul. I think in every relationship you have with an unbeliever, you need to ask yourself two questions. Those two questions are this. What do I want to accomplish in this relationship? And the second question is, 
What's the best way to go about accomplishing that? Say that again. With every relationship with an unbeliever, make a purposeful relationship, ask yourself two questions. What do I want to accomplish here? Most cases, I think you can have a biblical answer. And the second question is, what is the best way to accomplish that? Strategize. Think strategically. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that. He will give you amazing insights into how to do that. Okay? Yeah. This is okay to know the Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Actually, it's a great time. Okay. <laughs> um, I just want to give us a chance before we start today to interact with the uh, material. It's a little bit of a I think it relates to a lot of what you're saying. Um, you guys have, if you have these, if you can just take out the red and uh, white book. If you could open just to the end of both. Uh, let's say page uh, 57 in one of these, in the white one, and the red one would be page uh, 29. 29 is in red, 57 is white here. Um, I don't remember who it was where I first heard the expression, I don't know if it was well, Stephen Covey, sometimes how it affects people, one of these sorts of things where they encourage you to begin with the end in mind, right? To think about uh, your first step based on your goal, right? What you dream will happen, the vision you have. And it's a wise principle, certainly for ministry as well. And you're talking about a little bit about that, John. You know, how are you, you know, what do you want to accomplish? How are you going to get there? So, the last session, uh, it deals with Mark chapter 8 and Peter's confession when Peter finally asked, I'm sorry, Jesus finally asked the disciples, hey, who do you say that I am? You've been with me, you've walked with me, I've sent you out, you've come back, you've seen people healed, you've seen people repent, you've seen people's lives change. Big question, who do you say that I am? And he raised confession of the living God. And, um, and then he goes on, Jesus does, to talk about for the first time, really, is death on the cross. And Peter actually rebukes him. <laughs> Peter gets it right and gets it wrong. Right. Um, and how all of us are called to take up our cross and follow Christ. And so, this section uh, deals with that. It, it, it helps a person who's come to our group, who's been introduced to Jesus, who's seen his lives and his work, deal with the question who do you say that I am? And also, then, what's the response? What will that life look like? And so, just one more one, it's good to look at some of the questions here. So, for instance, in the, in the white book, does a nice job of leading people through on their own, using the Word of God. He's here on page 61, discuss uh, what is it good for a man to be able to worldly forfeit his soul? How would you answer that question? Uh, how might you be ashamed of Jesus and his words? Mark 8, 38. How would you score the following statement? Sifting the Christ Son of God, and then rest with my sin. You know, you see, you see the rest there. Um, so it does sort of lead people into that place. Red book, very similarly. Um, you'll see here on page 32, in what ways would you have to deny yourself to follow Jesus? Uh, what you've learned from Mark 8, describe what a Christian is, use your own words. Would you use the uh, words of us to describe yourself? So it kind of points to the arrow back to you. I, I 
have here for your questions too, but I just want to point this out. And also, what's really cool about all this, and this is totally in God's timing. I, I just, again, there's so many things God has orchestrated and lined up in this timing. This whole process has just been amazing. But is that um, this will be the sermon text, meaning at the end of Christianity is born. Like, we'll actually, um, uh, what is that? Uh, be Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday will be who you say that I am. Easter, uh, and likely um, the deny yourself text. And then Easter Sunday will be the transfiguration of Jesus and the question about why does Jesus have to rise from the dead. So what's really cool is that all surrounding this time, and even if you brought someone on to church for the first time, they'd be introduced to this text once, sort of on their own, and then also the small groups, potentially as well. So be thinking about that. My question is for you, John. Um, you get to this point. Let's say we have our friends, a neighbor, co-worker, or someone we met in the church, we invite them along for Shandy's for the dinner group. We get to this point. You go through these questions. And these are pretty personal questions, right? I mean, you might even think, you know, take some time, fill these questions out. They do that. How do you go from there, typically? Like, do you typically go and sort of a, you know, address the whole group as a facilitator or a leader and say, hey, um, consider these questions at home, we'll talk about it later sort of thing. Would you consider maybe breaking up into like twos or threes, maybe even with another person who came as a non-Christian to talk about it with someone else? What would be some options. Maybe there are options. You just go well, there's actually there's actually several. I don't I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I think being open with what the Holy Spirit's leading in the dynamic of that group. You might have a group, and the majority of the people are are already so with you that that the answer is almost a foregone conclusion. They're going, yeah, I believe this, and there's been an atmosphere that's been cultivated in the group that that makes that friendly. You also may have people who who, who at that point in time are still resisting. The big picture, seven weeks isn't that long in the discipleship relationship. And you might have people who are very resistant. Um, it, it, I think that if you have a chance to build over the dinner time a certain amount of relationship and friendship within the group, hopefully the goal, I would think, to, to, would be to be able to give people an opportunity to give an honest enough answer that everybody's going to accept mm-hmm. and not judge and not counsel on one way or the other. Does that make sense? To where they could speak freely. It, uh, that would be a probably attacking the ideal world and say, well, here's where I am, and here's my own thoughts on this. But if, if you sense that you haven't gotten that, then maybe breaking up into smaller groups might might be a, a way to do it. There's a little technique that, uh, that I, I've seen people do and do well. If, if you don't feel like you feel like there's some people in the group that are really ready to uh, use the expression pray sinner's prayer and you go down that road, okay? But there's others that are not. One of the most creative things I know how to do is to close out a meeting with prayer. It goes something like this. I mean, Lord, I thank you that that you came for us, Lord, that you revealed to us, that you walked away, Lord, that you that you died for our sins and you rose on the third day. In other words, we're making basically the confession that you would make in a, in a, in a, of, of faith. And Lord, we receive that tonight. Because if you're giving people opportunity to agree, you want to agree, Lord. 
Those of us who, who receive that, receive that tonight, Lord, and we, we confess you to the Lord. In other words, I'm, I'm basically praying that class of sinner's prayer almost as a close to a meeting. Um, sometimes I've seen people receive Christ in a meeting just from praying along with that, and then the leader goes up and goes, when I prayed that prayer, you were really with me, weren't you? Okay? And they say, yeah, I really was. That was, that was for me. That's where I was. And then you've got, again, a further open door to know that, okay, there, uh, I hate this expression, but there's Bible. It's become personal to them. Uh, but you have to know when that, when that is and, and when that isn't. Um, if you err, my personal feeling is err on the side of boldness. Err at the risk of offending Here's why. It is unavoidable in the Christian faith that you will be rejected. He was despised and rejected of men, the man of sorrows and well acquainted with suffering. He was the kind of men, man that other men hid their faces from. Well, that was our master. If that was our master, then if we have a belief system that says we're never going to be rejected, and rejection is the worst possible thing that can happen to us, we got a problem. I've tried to teach my children that rejection, I don't, I don't, I don't want them to seek rejection. It's too much of the time we do that too. No. But I've tried to teach them that rejection is a normal part of Christianity. You know, you just need, you just need to make sure that they're rejecting the message and not you. That you haven't been the, the point of offense. You are not the stumbling stone. You are not the point of offense. But simply that they are making a Decision to not receive him or not receive the message that is him. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world that happens because honestly, you lose in this world a lot of times more than you gain. If you're really gaining, if you're really preaching, I mean, Paul goes into his town and he preaches to these crowds and he usually walks out with a handful of believers who become the cornerstone of the church. And then they spend years and years and years and years building that church, right? So that's kind of a normal situation in your faith. So there will be times that that, that does happen. So I say, if you're going to err, err on the side of asking. Just do it humbly and in a loving way. And ask them what, what, you know, how, how they respond to that. And that's one of the great things about what you just gave, too, because it really does, it leads to that. It almost is a natural conclusion. Who do you say that he is? Because if they respond in a particular way, well, there's your answer. Did they answer that? Yeah. Okay, other questions? Um, I don't know, maybe, Ryan, if you're going to bed and I suppose everyone kind of figure out which of the course books to, to look at. Because, I mean, like Neil and I have discussed this, and I, I, I kind of keep switching back between the two, because the one is a lot more in depth and it seems to be more geared towards. You know, when, when the people in the group that have been in the group for a while and were developed, where the other one is a lot more watered down and very you know, simplified for people that have no understanding. But it might also be too simplified for the people that have participated in the group that have been here for a while. You know what I mean? But bear in mind that uh, the point of this is to reach out to those that might not know Christ. So I'm a bit conflicted in terms of, and, you know, what kind of, you know, for people that have been through this, you know, what kind of guidance you give in terms of what might be a good one to follow and why? My, my reaction is kind of similar in, in that 
if I was dealing with a more sophisticated, more educated um, group of people, I probably wouldn't want to write it. If I wanted to go simpler and more basic, I would go with the red book. And that, that's going to depend on who's who's there. Um, I understand why they need you too. God bless them. It's smart. They're being they're being good strategists in doing that. And there's value in, in both of them. Um, but but there is. And I, I think that you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's sort of going to depend on, on who's in your group. Um, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I'm sure about the dish thing. It's like those of you have already chosen and you give a, a reason why you chose it. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I would say um, if you're a little more comfortable relationally, um, just sort of moving on the fly and you're excited about that opportunity, the Red Book could be interesting. I think one to do because um, people ask, you know, there are more opportunities to fill in for people to ask more follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. But you know, also, are you comfortable with really relying on God to speak through you? Are you really comfortable with saying what John Thomas from last night occasionally saying, I don't know, I'll get back to you? Or sometimes giving an answer, maybe God brings the mind from the Lord or whatever. Um, I would think that'd be both an opportunity to challenge with the Red Book, um, whereas the White's probably going to fill out more information. Um, like, I know our, I would um, as Katie and I talked about, we were probably going to go with the Red Book. But we also, there are a number of people we want to invite to go to Christ. And we we worry, we worry about the, honestly, the, the homework, there's kind of homework in here. Mm-hmm. And um, while it might be good for people who are highly interested, or those who are talking about people from the church who are not yet part of the community group, I think they might do it. But <clears throat> I worry that people who, you know, aren't in the church. And I'll give you uh, a leader handbook as well if you're leading one of the group. 
know, yeah, every place you go, whether it's the church or whether it's the bank or whether it's your work environment, most human beings put on a mask for public. But that's not what the message, you know, the, 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 the message of faith is, is the message of what Christ does for us and our need for him. So I would, I would tend to point people in that direction. No, other than just an encouraging story about someone uh, and experiences the nature of grace. You know, some people are going to hate grace and go, it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in their life. And they need it. I mean, people hate grace because it means they have to now throw away their works, you know, throw away <laughs> all, all reason for boasting. And, like, for instance, the opposite of that is I know. Someone uh, was sharing with me last week, a month with them, and this person would say, like, they're wondering if they themselves are Christian at this point. But then they said, they were talking with a friend, and they were asking, you know, what are you going to do tonight? Oh, we're going to community group. And uh, I said, what's that? And I said, you know, well, it's this place we get together where we try to understand the Lord and, and pray and, and see if we can spot himself in his word. He said, I can never do that. I'm not. The too many things in my life are too important to me to be that kind of person. It's, and I wish I was on lunch with that. It's a brilliant response. They said, but we're all going to seek release from the things that hold us bondage. That's why we're all there. We're all trying to be released from the things that, that hold us tightly that God wants to free us from. And, and that and the person said, wow, that's so you also have people who who respond to, oh, I have things I'm bondage to, I need to be released from, you know, as well. So um, I just think it's encouraging. I know you do that. It's good to hear that again. But it is, I mean, the church is, is full of people who need the Lord. And that's the point. It's not full of people who have perfected their walk. We're all in the process of it. And I think when we've done ourselves a disservice by painting the church in any way, 